And you're very welcome back to the Sassy Staff Room. We're in season three. Can you believe it? Um, if you're back, what we're going... They say, they say you should never mention dates in a podcast. Well, it's the 8th of September. I'm not going to mention the year. Uh, some of you have already been back a couple of weeks. Some have been back a bit longer. And I don't know about you, but this year we really hit the ground running. From a tech point of view, there's teachers asking for stuff that have never asked me for 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 this kind of stuff before. Uh, my name is Hassan Daba. I am your host for the next while or so. Uh, we do have some guest presenters. Hopefully, will be coming in um, uh, during season three. Uh, what is the SESI podcast? Well, the SESI podcast is... Uh, SESI, first of all, is the Computers and Education Society of Ireland, and they're 50 years old. Season 3 is going to carry that theme all the way through. SESI is 50, and it's growing all the time. Now, what is the Computers and Education Society of Ireland? Well, uh, that's a hard one to explain. And during the course of season three, we're going to be looking at what it is to be SESI, which is the Computers and Education Society of Ireland. And think about it, it's 50 years old. So somebody had the foresight to to set up Computers and Education Society of Ireland 50 years ago when there was no computers in school, or at least very little or very few computers in education. So uh, it's going to be interesting to, to get their take on it, how it was, and uh, the journey to, to how it is. But we can't really start season three without doing a bit of a recap on season two. Season two was a good one. From my point of view, I got to interview some very interesting people. Uh, one of the most interesting people I got to interview, like, to be fair, everybody was very interesting, but Ewan McIntosh kind of, I wasn't expecting this. Ewan is, a, is an educator. He set up No Tosh. He's also responsible for Teach Meet. So if you ever heard uh, any of your colleagues or indeed uh, Sassy talking about Teach Meets, this is not, it's his fault. Like, it's, it's all his fault. Uh, we spoke to him about Teach Meets with Mags Amond on the one podcast. And of course, you can go back and listen to it. We also spoke to Ewan about groovy work. What's groovy work? Well, let's hear from you. My colleague um, Brad Carter in Tokyo, he's a Canadian in Tokyo, um, and even that might give you a clue as to his attitude in life. He, he's been part of our team for the last 18 months on some really challenging projects in the Middle East and, um, and other places internationally, but working at distance in strange time zones, which is never easy. And occasionally I get worried. I get worried about other people's energy working on those kinds of time zones and with those kinds of deadlines. And it, there's two things he shared recently. We shared them in our provocation newsletter. Uh, this one was, I think, just last week, even that you can, when you're being asked to do work, you, he generally says either "yup," "nope," or "groovy." <laughs> "Yup" means um, I'll do it. It won't take me two minutes. It's probably quicker for me to do it than you to do it. "Nope" means no shut up, move on, I'm not going to do it. And groovy means not only will I do it, but I'll probably invest far more time than you're paying me for to do it because I'll enjoy doing it. And I think that's an, a very healthy approach to take to um, invitations, do things or requests. And then the other thing that he uh, taught me over the past 18 months is um, the choices we all take in life about the work we do. His thing is to do, and it sounds a bit hippie maybe, but his, his choice is to do cool work with cool people in cool places. 
Now, if you're a teacher in your school, you might kind of think, well, I'm, I'm stuck with two of those things. I have no control over those things. But even just cool work, make your work cool. And I think that you can complain about standards, you can complain about testing, you can complain about so many things in teaching, but there's actually a lot to love in it. And you've got to maybe, this is a good point, a spring clean almost, audit everything you're doing. Ask yourself what you're going to stop. Ask yourself what you're going to keep doing. And then the fun part is, well, actually the fun part is what you're going to get rid of, what you're going to stop. But the other fun part is what are you going to start and I think if you do go to a teach meet, you should go having already done that audit and worked out what you're stopping so that you've got room on your slate to get something new in there. Um, and I that should that. be cool. It should be cool. Don't do, don't take on noble work that you feel you've got to do. I wouldn't do a PhD. I couldn't write in the ivory tower language of a PhD. However, when Mags has done that, I would love to get my teeth stuck into translating it into mm. plain English that I can understand. You're and hired. <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> that would be groovy work. And I think that, that people, yeah. people are worth, it's worth getting into that, that mindset of realizing you don't always have to do everything you're asked to do. Everyone's got a degree of agency, but sometimes you just have to have the, the courage to, to say nope um, so that you can say yup and groovy to more things. Mm. I love the idea of go to a teach meet and think about what you're going to remove, what you're going to stop. Because you've got to do that before you go. You've got to do it before you go. Clean the so slate. Don't, don't go and go, I'm going to do something new. Just decide before you go, okay, I'm going to stop this. Well, I think that it's inter- it ties in quite nicely, actually, because um, we're talking about adult learning. And the reason your staff room can't be that place is because it's the wrong context. It's the wrong time with the wrong people, the wrong politics, uh, the wrong energy, and the wrong drink in your hand. Um, it's all the, all the wrong stuff. Um, so the, the context for adult learning is something that's often neglected, and not just in education, but in life. So with um, an incredible woman, Andrea Mitrea in Romania, um, she approached us uh, just before the first lockdown of the, the pandemic, um, began to hit and was actually about to pull the plug in the project and he said look um, all of our other customers have left us you know we lost 85% of our customers in the space of 10 days um, and I said you know we, I've got time <laughs> which is rare let's just do it we'll pay some sweat equity and if we get this uh, idea off the ground I'll be more than proud of it and in the end I should first of all point out we got every one of our 85% of those clients back bar one um, they, they eventually uh, realize that things don't just stop in fact it's the opposite we need to keep developing ideas and developing people um but in the meantime we had created a new school out of nowhere and it's remarkable because um the business model for the school is innovative it's actually a construction project where we've built a village um during the pandemic uh, in the hills of transylvania next to the city of kluge and um all of those sold and they needed a school. So two of the houses were knocked together to make the first school. The construction of phase two, which turns this village into a town is underway and all those homes are being sold, which means we're able to um, open a middle and high school in a couple of years. And we've just hired our first head of school uh, all the way from Buenos Aires, um, an Englishman coming with his family to the hills of Transylvania to, to run that school. 
what's magic about the school is it's not for children. Um, most schools have this one group of learners and Colina Learning Centre has two children and adults. It's actually a dual curriculum school because we felt that you, know, you can, or the, the vision uh, for the school is that we'll build a learning culture through every home. And I think actually a lot of schools would have that as a, as a purpose, as a goal. But you can't do that unless you're in every home. And so um, the purpose of the school is to support everyone, adults and kids, to learn how to thrive in life. And the curriculum is designed in a way that um, the children have their programme, which is tied to standards, New York State standards, in fact, um, and will lead to qualifications in a traditional sense. But alongside that is a curriculum that parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, locals in the community can engage with to talk about the same themes in a different way and look at how they um, grow their, their brain, their heart, their, their physical health, uh, their spiritual health as well. And, and kind of um, the community is uh, incredible. It's a, it's a school that has its own organic farm on site. Um, it has um, uh, an incredibly robust, rigorous early years curriculum in place already. Um, and the learning is designed for children and adults equally. And I think that that's phenomenal. And the, the impact it's had when we, we hadn't even advertised any jobs and we find ourselves with job applications streaming in because people said, I just want to work for that school. That's the kind of thing I want to be part of. And so in August, two years, two and a bit years after helping to create the vision and the purpose and the curriculum and the, the even the, down to some of the physical aspects of the school, I've never actually been on site and I've never met any of the team in person before. So in August this year, I'll get a chance to go and hang out in the school that I helped to build for the first time, which is extraordinary and crazy. I'm looking forward to it. That's, that sounds amazing. I, I have absolutely no words than other than that sounds amazing. It it's really crazy. Does. And the they, good faith, we talk about good faith, the good faith they showed in us. Uh, this is a, a kind of VC, venture capital type people from Silicon Valley who've, you know, they've made their money. They want to invest it in something worthwhile. And they, they fell in love with Romania, as a lot of people do when they visit it. Um, and he says, right, we'll, we'll build a village and we'll build the world's best school, which is basically what we're trying to do. Um, but the, I met with the board and said, yeah, they, they said, you know, we're not sure what's going to happen with construction, whether the project's going to be a success, because no one knows what's happening in the world at, at this point. This was in March uh, 2020. And when I said, look, I'll do it for free. I'll do it in return for good feeling. Uh, they said, you sure? Said, yeah, I'm in. And they trusted us to do good work. And what we've done is just blown expectations out of the water. So there's a whole new Romanian family over there for me to enjoy at some point when I get over. We'll build the best school in the world. Um, folks, that's the show title right there. <laughs> you don't have to actually manage to do it, but trying is the important part. Yeah, I don't, I look at, I don't, uh, Martin Luther King, he, he didn't say, I have an idea. He said, I have a dream, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, and it's, it's it. also, it's interesting, I think schools have to think about their families. When you're starting from scratch, you choose the family that you want to come to the school. So we want to be the best school in the world for dynamic, enlightened families who want to thrive in this kind of connected world. So most of the people moving to this community are home workers. They are digital people. Um, they understand, they have a sense of design. They don't think that their kid is going to necessarily go to Harvard. 
uh, to be successful in life. And um, so they're, they're also making the school what it is. They're quite a refreshing brunch. And can I ask, can I ask a, a, a silly question? What does, it, what does it look like? What does the nine to five look like? Or what does you walk in the door? Draw us a picture. It's uh, having never been. It's quite hard to draw a picture. Um, this is this but, is exactly why I asked yeah. you because I want <laughs> so, to hear your picture. And then my next question is: I wonder will that picture match up to? Well, the, it's inspired a great deal by um, Scottish uh, Gordonston expeditionary learning, influenced by all the work that um, uh, Ron and and co- Ron Berger and colleagues over in the states have done in expedition expeditions influenced heavily by what then the team at XP school in, in, in the north of England have done with it, um, infused with the research and the design cycle that we've been working on for the last 12 years. So when you walk in, you'll see kids, whatever age they are, they'll be in one of five stages of learning. They'll either be discovering, which is all that immersing into something new. They'll be, um, uh, and, and that discovery is using all four senses. So they are out in the mud, they're in the garden, they're doing all that kind of stuff you know they're not just in a in a class or in a space and um, we have a dream phase which is allowing kids to dream like so this is what you've just kind of been exposed to what would you like to do with it and so work negotiating curriculum with children what do we do next researching so now that you've settled on a research goal go do your homework so be interested in stuff that you wouldn't normally be interested in um, expand what you know build your understanding of stuff that you think you know, but you're not sure, build your knowledge. Knowledge is, is super important in this as well, because they can't really progress their ideas unless they know, but they have a deep desire to learn new stuff because they've got this dream that they've come up with. Then really important, do it. So manifest, move into action. You can probably hear a little bit of teach me pedagogy coming in there as well. So, you know, <laughs> shaping, uh, get feedback and keep going, persevere. And then the final part is transform. So really important is that we measure the impact of what young people or the adult learners actually achieve. So there is showcasing, uh, there is celebrating all the stuff you'd see in any school, but there's also looking at expanding beyond the school into the community. And actually we're exploring Colina newer communities in lots of other places around the world, in Latin America at the moment. So there'll be that opportunity as well to share ideas and see if they work in a completely different context. Um, when you walk in, these are very little people at the moment. They are four, five, six years old at the moment. Um, we have double the number of uh, kids than we can cope with. Um, and so the, the need to expand is there. But um, if you want to see what it looks like, you go to kalinalearning.com. Kalina is Romanian for hill. So kalinalearning.com. Uh, and you'll see plenty of some of the most beautifully shot practitioner video that you will ever see in the world. The one thing we do really well uh, at Notosh and um, with the team at Galina is uh, branding and storytelling. So you will see beautiful stories told in HD 4K. Uh, so enjoy going to, to have a look at that. 
Building the best school in the world is an intriguing concept. Now, if you want to know more about that podcast or if you want to hear a bit more from Ewan, well, you can go back. You can get that podcast on Spotify or wherever you, you get your podcast from. Um, you can download it. Please, we'd ask you to download and subscribe because that affects our, our numbers and it means we can, we can it changes the algorithm. You know yourself, I'm not going to bore you with all those details. Uh, but we do want listeners. So if you enjoyed it, tell a friend. If you didn't enjoy it, don't tell anybody. The, one, of the, uh, one of the other guests we had on was Kate Kogi. Kate Kogi's from America and she's an educator over there. And she's, the interview itself was very, very interesting. We talk about making the maker, uh, the maker ethos, uh, the virtual environment, uh, virtual learning, and some of the stuff that she's doing in her school and indeed in her setup over, uh, over in America. Now, you're going to want to listen to this because I enjoyed this interview, but I'll be honest with you, and it sounds a bit daft. I actually enjoyed listening back to it, if you know what I mean. Like, she has an awful lot to say, and frankly, if the hour wasn't up, we'd um, we'd still be talking now. This yes. is Kate Kogi. I mean, the thing about the virtual environment is it sort of really just made even more clear to me the divide between sort of the have and have nots within, you know, society, but also just within the K-12 environment. I had students who I never saw in the virtual environment. It just, they had too many other things going on at home and like, just if they were home, they needed to do something else like help out with siblings or pick food or work um and joining in on school was really secondary um in that dynamic and so in some ways like I you know I see how like this the virtual classroom really emphasized that in many ways and it really just you know we you know we see how for some students you know the virtual environment was really beneficial and you know I think if it were me going through that as, you know, a middle schooler um, during that time, I probably would have loved it. But um, mm. I know for many, that's not the case. Um, and so I think that, you know, what I love about the virtual environment, and one thing that I've been able to do with students is connect them, like, they're, they're at school right now, but um, being able to connect them with people from a, around the world who they otherwise wouldn't be able to be in contact with. We, I mean, this past couple months, I've been able to introduce them to folks within the Smithsonian who are doing amazing work all over the globe. And I never really would have thought of that prior to this. I just sort of been like, oh, they can email or we can watch a video about them. But I had students in Admiral County who were looking at ArcGIS data along with the scientists and researchers who made that data and put it together. And they were going through, um, you know, images and sort of rating them. They're looking at oyster reefs in the Chesapeake Bay, but um, being able to do that with, you know, with these people in person is just, it's such a memorable experience. And so what I hope is, is that while in the beginning, I think in the pandemic, I the beginning of the pandemic, it really showcased, you know, what needed to be done. But there is so much that technology can add to the classroom environment. So many cool new connections that we can have. So many ways where we can all kind of come together and, I don't know, build that 
tech literacy that students are like they catch on quick and like so watching a student work in a google doc or work in like I don't know, work in any space. I've done Minecraft-based projects with students before. I'm terrible at Minecraft. I don't know what I'm doing, but my students are great at it. And so giving them the option is like, hey, if you can show me what you're talking about here in this Minecraft world that you've created, great. Like, that's all I need. Um, and it just, yeah, there's... And that's part of the inclusivity. That's that's the thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there there's there are teachers out there that why did you become a teacher? I became a teacher to catch the person like I was in school. That's mm -hmm. one answer, you know, I, I can see. Um, and that's that's the whole inclusivity. And I, I feel that the virtual the virtual learning space has created that. And I feel sure. we need to hold on to that. Mm -hmm. And our ability to teach over a virtual environment, I think that's key. I think we need to remove the terminologies. We need to forget about Zoom, docs whatever the kids don't use those they just go oh yeah i open the thing and I <laughs> type the thing and how did you not get that yeah. um look at I'm, I'm i'm i've asked that question to every single guest i had to ask yourself but come on let's move on to the nitty gritty the k-12 albemarle lab school and the albert einstein distinguished educator fellowship with the smithsonian national air and space museum what uh, <laughs> discuss sure we can talk about um so uh the school it's a community lab school it's in um admiral county schools um in virginia it's a i worked in the middle school so grades six through eight um so uh students are about 11 to 14 and then but our school is middle and high so um basically wide range of um ages all together in one building um really it's very, the focus has been just sort of driving student agencies. So, you know, we really try to create, so it's all project-based. So rather than, you know, we have your science class, your math class, your language arts class, like chunking it into parts of the day, we really try to take a more holistic approach to um, that environment. And so really thinking about um, how people really learn, like nobody in the real world like approaches things like in that mindset. And so really trying to come up with ways where students can take on these interdisciplinary projects together um, in a space where they can experiment and take risks. Um, and so I, ew, it was such a challenge to do that sort of work because, you know, if you teach subject by subject, there's materials out there, you like, you know, what's next in the sequence of events, but with brand new projects, it's just like, okay, what are we going to do? What's what's a thing that comes to mind and so um it was it's so challenging but so fun i mean we i mean i've had so such a great time like we i did when we were virtual we did a uh we called it the great biologist baking show where students created their own um sourdough starter um uh, you know, we, they came to the school, actually, we had to like get all of these materials out to the students. They, they came to the school where we dropped off, you know, sourdough starter at their house out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so from home, they had all their lab equipment and we'd be on Zoom and we'd be like feeding the starter, talking about it, sort of talking about the chemical changes, but also, you know, the artistic elements of baking. So our art teacher actually came in, he did bread art 
with barns. And so we went through like different ways where you could like cut, you know, cut your loaf or, um, you know, braid it to, um, you know, to get different qualities of it. Um, and it's actually, it was, it was so fun. And I love the great British baking show. And so we actually made episodes for the great biologist baking show talking about sort of the, all of the different processes that go into bread. Um, and not just sourdough, but just bread in general, sort of like the cultural aspects, the, um, you know, the artistic elements, like every single piece. Um, and it was so much fun to work on this with my teaching team, because when we were sort of coming up with, you know, the components of this, we were just in a room, like sitting in a circle, like just throwing ideas out there, getting excited and mapping it out. And that's how the projects work there is sort of, you know, before we even start it, we come together, you know, weeks in advance and we, you know, just sit and we just talk about like, <laughs> what's the thing you want to do and yeah. just going into it. And it's, it must be amazing to work in an environment like that, to be able to sit down with a group of people and just go, hey, what are we going to do next? It's amazing. Oh, gosh. And the students love it, too, because, you know, it's like nothing they've seen before. Um, they really get to engage with whatever mm. it is they're doing. And I really tried with many of the projects to engage um, the Admiral County community or the Charlottesville community. Um, within the work. So students got to, like the school itself is in downtown Charlottesville. Um, it's a small city, but um, you can walk to things. And so mm -hmm. we are walking distance to so many great places. And so we did, we did a scale model of the solar system on Charlottesville's downtown mall one year um, where the students actually, we talked about the planets in the solar system and then um, we measured it out, you know, where would each planet go? Um, and this is right before the holidays and the students each designed a structure, a thing um, to represent their planet that they were working on. Um, and it didn't have to necessarily be like, a, you know, a sphere. It could be mm -hmm. like, you know, the Roman God that it's about, or it could be, um, I remember the earth, um, the earth representation was like a potted plant that they had designed to, you know, represent life. Um, cool. But the coolest thing was like, they were also, the Charlottesville's downtown mall, um, you know, it's about a mile, it's a little less than a mile. So we had to measure it out and we had to mark each point. But we had all the students out in this giant marketplace, basically, with people out holiday shopping. Um, and they would like they'd walk up to the kids they're out there with this like pedestal they had made with their planet on it and the students got to talk about their planet with people so like i encourage them like have people ask like you know come up with questions like get people interested in your planet and why they should know about it and they made little qr codes and um the students actually we <laughs> they wrote and walked into many of the businesses um, downtown and their planets got to stay on the downtown mall throughout the whole holiday season. So um, wow. they, the, it's sort of like when you mentioned um, having a student call the air traffic control, like I had students go into these businesses and they were just like, hey, I wanna put Saturn in your movie theater, would that be okay? <laughs> and they were, everyone was into it. We had every single, we had, all, all the planets plus Pluto and Ceres um, and the sun um, on Charlottesville's downtown mall 
for two weeks um, and people could scan the QR codes and learn more about them. And the students are really proud of that work, but um, I'm just coming up with that and the coordination of, you know, having kids on the, on this giant walking wall um, for an afternoon. That, uh, yeah, I, I was going to, I was going to sidestep that, the logistics <laughs> of, it was, yeah. Know, I want to be at that meeting where you approach them and say, we're going to take a bunch of students and we're going to bring them down the town. <laughs> we had a lot of parents out, thank goodness. So um, okay. a lot of parents came out. Um, the, the news came out too, which was honestly kind of helpful too. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was great. The students really, they, they had so much fun. It was just, it's great to get them out there. And it's great to, it was great to be a part of a team where, you know, people encourage that type of stuff. Like, I'm That's Kate Kogi there talking to us about uh, being part of a good team. Uh, one of the things that struck me about that uh, about that interview, if you want to listen back to it, of course, you know uh, it's it's available to download. Uh, was the uh, the idea of changing the learning environment. So the learning environment doesn't have to be a classroom. The learning environment traditionally was a classroom, but the learning environment can be anywhere. And the idea that you take students out of the classroom and put them in a real-life environment, a, a shopping street in, in that case, uh, is, is, is intriguing to me. And it's not easy. I know it's not easy, and there's an awful lot behind it. But uh, when it works, it really does work. Now I know, I know some of you are saying, "Yeah, but when it doesn't, it's it's." But don't don't think about that. Think about I'm going to make this work. Not will it work? It will work, um, and we're going to learn from it. The next interview uh, from season two was with Russell Tarr. Russell Tarr was one of the first people we interviewed um, on the SESI staff room, and again, the same as the same as Katie, if. If I didn't cut it off after a particular time, we'd still be talking now. Russell is a very, very interesting educator. I'll um, I'll let him kick things off. Well, like a lot of people from my experience, I didn't kind of set out with any great vocation to be a history teacher. I finished my history degree and I absolutely loved that. Uh, and then after that, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And in fact, I, I took a year off, worked around Germany for a while, just in bars. Then I actually uh, did a PGCE in history teaching, but didn't particularly enjoy it. I didn't like the head of department very much, to be frank. He just kept giving me lesson plans and didn't give me any leeway to be creative at all. So I thought this isn't the job for me. And then somehow or other, I managed to end up in an accountancy firm for 12 months, uh, which led to my Damascene moment, I suppose, when I decided that actually maybe teaching wasn't quite so bad after all compared <laughs> to bean counting. So. I applied on a whim to Wolverhampton Grammar School and just tried my luck, you know, gave it a re really strong application. I, I tried my best anyway. And fortunately, it was offered a job there. And, and from there, that's where it's progressed. It was a fantastic opportunity, wonderful school, Wolverhampton Grammar School, great colleagues, great students. Um, and it was there in my first year that I, I met my now wife. She was on an Erasmus programme. She was a, the French assistant at the time. And within a few years, We'd sort of gone as far as we could go in Wolverhampton Grammar School and there weren't really any promotion opportunities, but at the same time, it was really comfortable. So I thought, well, if I'm going to move, it's got to be to a, something very different, which is a real life change. So I thought I'm going to try and get into the international circuit rather than simply have more of the same in another school. Uh, and it so happened that an opportunity came up in Toulouse. I knew the head of department there from a conference I'd attended. 
and I applied for that job and we move over to the south of France and that's where I've raised our family of three children. I've been there ever since. That's 15 years now, actually. What's it like moving to an international um, or what's it like teaching in an international school? It was it, it's absolutely fantastic in many ways, very different in some respects. I think our school is quite particular and always has been in that it was the very first school to be fully laptop equipped. It was made the boast that it was the first fully laptop school. It was one of the things that drew me to it. Uh, and it had been that way since it was founded in 1999. So having access to technology on tap, you know, not having to book a computer room on a regular basis and finding it's been block booked by some um you know sociopathic colleague again <laughs> absolutely superb you know so i could go into a class and know that all of my students would have access to a laptop and the internet and that just gave me free reign um in beyond that in terms of the international dimension at first it wasn't particularly international we had about 70 percent british students <clears throat> um, but over time it's become more and more international we're at the school which is basically a subsidiary of airbus and so we cater for families of engineers who are often on short-term contracts for just two or three years. And depending on the projects, we might get a large influx, for example, of South Korean students for a few years, <clears throat> followed by a large contingent of Spanish or Indian. So as a result for a history teacher, it's, it's a real challenge, but a really interesting one to construct a syllabus, which is not just not Anglo-centric, but also less and less Eurocentric. So a lot of the materials I produce are becoming more and more global, things like the Silk Roads, Voyages of Discovery, and so on. That was uh, that challenge. That, that, that kind of ties into where I was going with that, in that because it's an inter international school, the student, so does, how does your teaching change because of the students there are from so many different backgrounds? Uh, or does it change at all? Am I completely wrong about that? Obviously, it throws up certain challenges in terms of uh, language acquisition and so on. You have to differentiate quite a lot as far as is it ever possible. You've got to be culturally sensitive as well um, to the fact that, for example, two examples spring to mind. With Spanish students, we, we study the Spanish Civil War as part of our IB studies. Um, and some of the students are very, very engaged with that. They come from that background. I mean, we have a lot of kids whose families originally came across the Pyrenees as refugees during the Franquist regime, for example. But by the same token, a lot of them, for exactly the same reason, don't want to talk about that. And it's just off the table as, as part of a family discussion. So you have to be sensitive to the fact that although you might assume that because this is part of their national history, they'd be quite keen to engage and discuss it. The opposite is sometimes true. And the same is true for South Koreans. Um, I had one year where the GCSE compulsory source work paper was the Korean War. And so I just blundered into asking my students, well, go home and ask your parents what their opinion is of the Korean War or how their families were caught up in it. And basically got letters back from parents to the management saying this is just not appropriate. We, we don't discuss this. Uh, so I always thought I was being kind of culturally sensitive and trying to draw in their experiences. But you, you can put your foot in it sometimes without realising. But like anything, it's a process of, uh, of experience, isn't it? Uh, but it makes for a very rich sort of classroom environment because I, I can teach the Middle East crisis and have three ultra Zionists in the room from Israel. You know, that's yeah, that, that, I suppose that's that's really where I'm going with that in in the back of my head. Now I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, how how do you have how do you how do you teach that sensitively? 
Well, it, it sharpens your basic historical skills because any good history teacher is going to provide students with different perspectives on the same event and ask them to look at the evidence and think it through for themselves without judgment, you know. Um, so that, that is part of my job. I mean, I, I got a present from my grade 12 last year, actually, my, my final year students. They brought me a, a metronome and that apparently was their nickname for me. And they've made a series of memes for me called the metronome because I can come into a lesson and, and give them a very right wing view of a particular event very deliberately. And then the following lesson come in and say, of course, what I told you there was a load of rubbish and then give them a very left wing view of exactly the same thing. <laughs> and they're, they're always asking themselves, well, what exactly is your view on it? So it doesn't really matter what my view is, does it? It's, it's the fact that I'm giving you the different perspectives. But in terms of the Middle East, that was one of my best examples where I had these three very you know, ultra Zionists who we once had a, a lesson where they had to divide a map between the Palestinians and the, um, the would-be Israelis, you know, the Jewish settlers at the end of World War II. And so I divided them into Palestinians and into Jewish settlers. And the, the, I'd split the ultra-Zionists between three different groups, but all three groups came back with a map which was simply shaded in one colour for yeah. the Jewish settlers. And when I said, well, what about the Palestinians? They just like spit back at me. What about the Palestinians? They're not even a people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so managing that's quite difficult, but you know, they, they ended up really fantastic students. And one of them went away and joined the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. And I had a Google Hangout with him, with my students. Wow. Fully expecting him to be very biased. And I primed my students to be aware of the fact mm. that he was a very subjective witness. But in fact, he'd matured considerably and had been part of a program in Israel where students um, from a Jewish background to, were mixing with students from Palestinian backgrounds together at university mm. as part of like a cultural awareness program. And his perspective on the whole Arab-Israeli conflict very much broadened out and matured. That was Russell Tarr there uh, talking to us about, well, the, uh, teaching in an international school, being a history teacher. If you want to hear more about that, you know the story, uh, go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your, your podcast, and you can, uh, you, can, you, can listen, you can listen back to that. Uh, the next interview was a very easy interview for me to do because it's, well, Kate is a friend, Kate is a colleague. Uh, I've, I've worked with Kate in, uh, w with regards to Ceci. Kate is uh, Ceci's secretary. Um, now, that means Kate tells us where to be, what to do, and how to do it. I'm not going to lie. That, that's what she does. Uh, but Kate is also an educator. She's in third level. And I started off by asking her, how do you think or what have we learned or what are we going to take away from the pandemic and lockdown? And will we take anything at all? Uh, Kate... The question I've, I've put forward and I have been putting forward since the very first sort of staff room, and I'm asking everybody, people on the street, random people, <laughs> what, what, how do you think things are going to change? How, in your opinion, how, do you think people are going to go, oh, thank God this is over, let's go back to it? Or do you think people are going to go, my God, we've learned some great skills I'm going to use them to support my teaching yeah you know the the cautiously optimistic side of me says yeah everyone's going to learn from what happened and, and, and you know and absolutely embrace everything that we've done the the logical you know side of me is looking at what's happening in our own context or even across the project and that return to normal 
that very much being in force. So I, I, I remain conflicted. I think it is a wasted opportunity to take anything positive from the experience if we don't try to adopt some of what we did because like especially in our case like some of the work we've done around inclusion and universal design and the way people redesigned their teaching to include more learners because it gave them space to think about you know how they would adapt in this online setting and adopting new things you know to see any of those practices abandoned is you know it wouldn't just be a waste you know it'd just be the greatest shame so I think it's going to take time. I think the the problem is, I think, and it, it's actually relevant across probably every sector, every workplace, is honestly that people haven't had any chance to reflect. You know, at what point mm. are things going to calm down enough where, you know, everyone has two months of a summer to say, you know what, we're going to think about our practice and we're, we're going to, you know, stiff yeah. things. You know, it, it's, it's, I don't think that's happened yet. <laughs> Yeah, and I suppose that was that was one of the questions, one of the discussion points I had with at the very, very start. I can't remember off the top of my head now, but it was when is the reflection going to take place? We are educators, you are educators, we are educators. At some point, we need to stop, drop, and reflect. But I fear that that's not going to happen. I fear that we're just going to stop, drop. Summer is here, back to school again, all done, without the reflection. Mm. Because I believe, I firmly believe, and I work with teachers all the time, mm. they, they're not seeing the skill set that they've, that they've, they've gained. And it, the mind boggles. I'm going, last year you didn't know what a PowerPoint was. This year you this year you've created a virtual classroom. Yeah. yeah. That's our very own, Ceci's very own, Kate Malloy, talking to us there. Again, an interesting interview. And if you want more about that, you know the crack, download it, uh, find it on the Apple on the Apple podcast. It's there in full, it's in its entirety. The last but not least, um, we got a, an opportunity to interview Joe Dale. Joe Dale is a languages teacher. If you're on Twitter and you don't know who Joe Dale is, you're missing a trick with Twitter. Joe uses Twitter on a regular basis. Joe has a very big Twitter um, reach. Um, I would. He's very open on Twitter. You can reach out to him, so, so definitely do reach out to him. We got a chance to reach out to him here, and we asked him, uh, really, where, where, where did it all start? Okay, so basically I was a languages teacher for 13 years. I taught secondary school level for three years and then 10 years at middle school level. I went to my middle school in 1999, and as I said, I worked there for 10 years. So that was really when um, I developed an interest in technology, how technology can enhance language learning in particular, although I do do lots of cross-curricular sessions now, more and more actually as a result of the the pandemic through webinars, etc. But that's my my background. And then around 2002, I think it was, I came across what was uh, what is now through the Linguascope website, which is, at the time was called bonjour.org.uk. And I was blown away by these sorts of hot potato type of activities. Those people who don't know hot potatoes, it's like a, it's a multimedia suite you could download from um, a university in Canada and you could design your own activities, things like, you know, drag and drop and gap fills and, and that sort of thing. And I was really impressed by the uh, bonjour.org.uk 
website and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I was so keen. I, I asked my school if I could go on a course in uh, in Colchester and it so happened the day the, the day that I went, it was snowing. And so the course the course was cancelled, but there were two people who'd also come from Bolton, if I remember correctly, or from the northwest anyway, had come down. And then what we did was we, we went to, um, I think it was a McDonald's, if I remember correctly, and spent about two or three hours there just sharing tips and tricks about how to use technology and languages, which was amazing. And then I Went back on the course. Actually, it actually ran uh, whenever it was a few months later. But that was that's why I started. And then through um, lots and lots of dedication and using the internet and connecting with people and being on Twitter a little bit later on. But I mean, from there, I sort of got into PowerPoint and all that sort of stuff. And then I, I sort of found my tribe, as it were, around 2006 or so when I started blogging and connecting with you know the, the world out there more rather than just being on different forums and what have you and picking up some ideas. But it was more... When I got into the whole blogging and podcasting again through you and Macintosh, who really inspired me back in the day, I sort of found my feet, as it were, and found my tribe. Yeah, and to be fair, you and Macintosh, if you don't recognize the name, you should. I think he inspires an awful lot of people, to be honest with you. Uh, using technology in education, I mean, SESI is the Computers and Education Society of Ireland. And as it happens, 2023 will see 50 years. That's five zero years of technology in education or computers in education. When it comes to languages, you, you, you just mentioned it briefly there. How do you see the use of technology when using languages in education? How do you see the supports there? Okay, so I think um, you can sort of divide the use of technology in languages into sort of two main areas. The first area would be that sort of receptive, independent um, language learning model using sites like uh, Quizlet and Duolingo and memorize the way in which technology really lends itself to space repetition and retrieval practice and the fact that the, the students can learn on the move they can learn you know when they're coming in uh, to school on the bus or when they're going for a walk and, and that whole uh, mechanistic type of learning the way in which you can um, you, you know the algorithms can help you to remind you of the words you need to work on you can have uh, these uh, types of streaks whereby you you gain points the more that you hit the the levels expected the way in which you can maybe if you're if you're not particularly good at uh, organizing yourself then things like quizlets and so on and so forth will will really help you to to remind you of what it is that you need to work on and that idea of of little and often which which teachers have known about obviously for years and years and years this idea of the the ebbinghaus learning curve that you can review the content that you're studying every every day let's say and by the end of the week when you take your let's say final um test in class then you should do better compared to if you try and cram everything at the last minute so i think that from an independent learning point of view the tools i mentioned already are, are really helpful in uh, enhancing language learning by going through that what could be regarded as quite boring mechanistic vocab practice or grammar practice but it helps to forge new neural pathways in the brain by virtue of the, of the fact that you are practicing maybe much, much more using that sort of traditional methodology, but using the technology compared to if you were to do the same sort of thing on, say, on paper with pen. That was Joe Dale there. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. And that's all we have time for. Now, I said it before, I'll say it again. If you're interested, please let us know. If you want to get involved, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you're doing in your school. Uh, we'd love you to subscribe to our uh, podcast. And um, if we can help you, um, let us know. We'd be, we'd be absolutely delighted to help. Can't emphasize it enough. This is what the kids are saying. Subscribe, uh, download, let us know uh, your feedback. And as I said, if you've enjoyed it, 
uh, tell a friend. If you didn't enjoy it, tell nobody, and I would love to hear from you. You can always get us on Twitter, at Ceci Tweets. You can get me directly on Twitter, at Hassan Dabai. You can get me on Instagram, uh, just type it into Google, I'm the other one. Um, (laughs) Type it into Google and you know what I'm talking about. Um, I I would love to hear from you. I'd love to get your feedback. Uh, Season 3 is going to be an exciting one. Season 3 is all about Ceci, 50 years old. um, And we have some very interesting interviews from then. uh, The journey so far and Ceci now. So until I talk to you again, take care. Chat to you soon.